welcome back to Historian Explaining, where Historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. So I've been away for a couple of weeks, and now I'm going to go back to the sort of themes and subjects that I was doing months ago, just about the evolution of the Western world out of the Middle Ages into what we call the modern era. So this isn't part of my other series, Myths of the Month or United States in 100 Objects. I think that soon I'm going to do another Myth of the Month for patrons only. And uh, based on the vote that I got from followers on Twitter, it'll be about the West, the idea of, of the West as a distinct society, right? Which is a concept I even use. I use it when I teach. I use it here in this podcast. Uh, but it can be deconstructed like all kinds of other myths we've been talking about. I also have been wanting for a while to start doing interviews, so uh, this summer I'm going to try to start doing that. I've also heard from some listeners that they'd like the podcast to come more regularly, something like uh, regular three a month or four a month. I would definitely like to do that, uh, but to make it feasible, to keep them coming out on that kind of regular schedule and to be able to do the logistics and have the the right equipment to do interviews like I'd like. I just need a bit more patrons. So I'm going to tentatively say if I get nine more patrons up to 55, uh, then I'm going to make this a priority, right? To, to turn these out on a regular basis so you can get them reliably, you know, every week. Uh, you know, so I'm, I'm going to work towards that. So uh, if you can support, please do, or spread the word, post about it, tell friends and family. So I'm going to talk now about Tudor England. So this is a subject that probably most all of you have heard something about. You might know about Henry VIII and his many wives. You might know about Queen Elizabeth and Shakespeare. And all of those things are important and interesting. And I'll probably talk more about them soon. I've mentioned that at some point I want to do a lecture or two even about Shakespeare. But the Tudor era, if we look at it from a bigger picture, wider perspective... Uh, What matters is not just kind of the court drama and the family drama, but it fits into a bigger process of the consolidation of power in the hands of monarchs. So I already did a lecture a while ago about the age of absolutism from the viewpoint of the rise of the Habsburgs in Central Europe. So I'm going to sort of fit this into the same series, although the situation was different, right? England has a much longer history going back, you know, seven, eight hundred years before the Tudor takeover, a history as some sort of coherent realm or kingdom with some sort of shared customs, language, and eventually single rulers, right? And that's not true of, say, the Germany or Switzerland of the Habsburg Empire, which was much more of a kind of crazy quilt of different little communities and societies. So the Tudors were, their significance was different. They were not creating a new state, but they were drastically reorganizing it. 
and trying to make it into a new kind of machine that would work at the disposal of a single monarch. And arguably the Tudors and then the next dynasty, the Stuarts, who came after them, got the closest that any English rulers ever did to absolute rule. Right? England traditionally has divided and limited powers. There are all kinds of institutions like the parliament, local councils, the church, that have always kind of functioned with their own authority and had their own resources. So England was never unified or centralized into the kind of absolute monarchical state like France was, say, under Louis XIV, which is like our kind of iconic image of absolutism, right? It never got to that point, but it came about as close as it possibly could, given the laws and the customs and the geography of England, under, certainly under Elizabeth and then under her successors, James I and Charles I. But the groundwork for that had to be laid for more than 100 years, beginning with the first takeover of the Tudor dynasty. So when I discussed Game of Thrones, you might remember if you listened to that one, I talked about the Wars of the Roses, this sort of repeating outbreak of civil war, almost all through the 1400s, that was mainly dominated by factions backing the York dynasty and the Lancaster dynasty. Right? The, the Yorks and the Lancasters, which of course is echoed in the, the Starks and the Lannisters, right? Uh, but those wars really hampered England, right? They caused death and destruction. There were terrible, destructive, brutal battles like Towton and Barnet, and they drained off an enormous amount of money, of wealth that the kingdom could have been generating. Uh, they kept England as really a, a second or third rate kind of backwater kingdom in Europe. And it was finally put to bed by a rebellion and a coup mounted by a young, fairly minor nobleman, Henry Tudor, who was very distantly related to the Yorks and the Lancasters, who all came by one line or another from the older Plantagenet dynasty and from William the Conqueror. He was a pretty minor player. His family was a kind of low-level noble family of partly Welsh descent. The name Tudor is Welsh. And so, naturally, Henry Tudor did what many, you know, would-be usurpers did. He went abroad found supporters, allies, money. He made a landing in Wales and gathered supporters, right? And marched westward through Wales and into England, into the Midlands of England, where he faced off against a royal army under King Richard III and defeated him at the Battle of Bosworth Field, just outside of Leicester, basically right in the middle of England. And he came to power with the support of all sorts of parties and factions in England who were basically tired of the Wars of the Roses, who were afraid that if they backed either a Yorkist or a Lancastrian, that would simply continue to feed into this cycle of violence and instability. And they saw Henry Tudor as this kind of appealing compromise option 
who hopefully could restore the peace of the realm. So he came to power and was proclaimed King Henry VII. Now, there was still, as with the Lancastrians before him, there was still a kind of a cloud of doubt and illegitimacy over him, even as he ruled uh, really unchallenged as king, right? By what right could he be considered the legitimate uh, king of England, right? And so he had to systematically uh, circumvent and cut out alternate bases of authority and power within England that could be used against him. And over his whole reign and over those of his successors, there was a sort of cloud of not only of doubt, but also of fear of the specter of civil war and fear of the possibility of falling back into that cycle of division and civil war that had simply plagued the country for generations before Henry came to power. And it's largely because of that that he was able to get away with the kind of style of governance that he did. So if we look at Henry VII, this first Tudor king, you know, when he ruled from 1485 to 1509, nobody really knew if a line of rulers, a line of kings, would successfully follow from him or if there would simply be another coup, right, and more and more civil war. So Henry ruled in a very careful and you might say paranoid sort of style. He was extremely private and secretive. He didn't make a lot of public appearances, maybe because he wasn't inclined to, maybe because he was afraid of assassination. And he ruled largely by backdoor dealings, by pulling administrative strings. And he went about a sort of campaign of judicial and military retrenchment trying to reorganize power and where decisions were made and centralize power within Westminster, right? That, that seat of royal and parliamentary government outside London. Probably the most important single new institution that Henry created was the so-called Court of Star Chamber, which was formed in 1487. So for many years, there had been various courts around England, including common law courts deriving their authority from the king, uh, local sort of legal and ecclesiastical courts. And one of the problems with this complicated multi-layered system was that people tended to be tried locally according to the customs of a particular county or village. And if you were a very powerful person, like a powerful wealthy noble, a landowner, a landlord who had command of a militia, you could get away with basically anything. You know, someone might accuse you of a crime, maybe of stealing from or mistreating your tenants, for example, and you'd be taken to a court and there was no chance that they were going to convict you. You know, Trial by jury is the custom in England and has been since really the Anglo-Saxon invasion. And if you have a jury of local people at your trial and many of them 
are debtors who owe you money or your own tenants, your own servants, they're not going to convict you, right? So there was basically impunity for a lot of powerful magnates around England. And the Court of Star Chamber was a special court created by the joint authority of the King and Parliament that met secretly behind closed doors in a room in the Palace of Westminster. It was called the Court of Star Chamber simply because the ceiling was painted in a classic late Gothic motif of a blue sky with stars. So it, that's, that's the only reason why it's called that. But the Court of Star Chamber was staffed by trained lawyers, common law judges, right, who were educated in the common law, meaning the shared, standard, royally-backed law of the realm, as well as privy counselors who could just be any sort of trusted servant of the crown that the king wanted to appoint. And the Court of Star Chamber had authority to arrest and question and try and punish anybody, right? Regardless of whether you were a noble or a commoner, a churchman, whatever. And so the Court of Star Chamber had a leveling effect. And that was one of its main purposes, right? And this is part of why it was accepted as legitimate and became a, a real fixture and a real pillar of the authority of the Tudor dynasty was because nobody was outside of its grasp. And very powerful men who could get away with something if they were off in Dorset or Northumberland or wherever could be taken before the Court of Star Chamber. And when you got there, you, you knew that you were in big trouble, right? As soon as you saw those stars on the ceiling, you knew you were in trouble and uh, you, could be, uh, you could be questioned on the basis of all kinds of laws and prerogatives and you could be condemned. And if so, then eventually your money, your property, your titles could all be seized by the crown. So it was a great instrument of crown authority over these kind of noble magnates. And that was very important because these noble magnates were precisely the kind of people who had been fueling and perpetuating the Wars of the Roses and conflicts like that, right? It really, the, the power shifted depending on where the favor of these kind of noblemen turned. Right? But now, if you even so much as made a gesture towards supporting a challenger to the king, you could be tried for treason, and all your estates could be seized, which did happen to some people. Okay, so the Court of Star Chamber, in this way, it had a leveling effect. It was a, a learned, educating court, but it also had its critics, and fear and resentment towards the the Court of Star Chamber grew through the years, through the, the Tudor era and on into the 1600s under the Stuarts as well. Uh, it could be very arbitrary. Who exactly do they choose to target? It could basically be, you know, whichever sort of suspicious noble or, or ecclesiastic that the king didn't like, right? It could be very politically motivated. As I said before, it was secretive. Uh, it also was empowered not only to enforce the common law, but sometimes it could make judgments on the basis of equity, which means 
simply a sort of general sense of fairness, right? So it could condemn people for things that weren't technically illegal according to the letter of the law, but that the court judged should be illegal or sort of seem wrong, right? So that's an enormous uh, authority to claim for yourself, to make that kind of moral judgment, right? And, and many people saw this as, as dangerous and also as usurping the proper authority of parliament to enact or reject laws, right? The court could kind of make its own law sometimes. So this was a very powerful and very frightening court, right? And it became one of the, the main weapons that made the Tudors monarchs with a sort of power that had never been seen before in England. Now, one of the main reasons why Henry wanted this court to operate was not only to uh, enforce the law and to beat back the sort of abuses of, of powerful nobles, but also to bolster revenue, right? It was a way to enforce debts that powerful and wealthy people might owe to the crown or taxes or fees. And this became more and more an important part of the council's business so that in 1495, a group from the Star Chamber Court sort of hived off and formed a separate subgroup called the Council Learned in the Law in 1495. And this council could use their capacious knowledge and also their sort of secretive shadowy power to extort bribes, to obtain fees, back taxes, and like in the Court of Star Chamber, they had a kind of tremendous advantage over the people they were trying because those people had no particular right to an attorney. Uh, they had no right to remain silent, right? This is part of where the principle of the right not to incriminate yourself, what Americans know as the, the Fifth Amendment right, not to be forced to testify against yourself, that grew out of criticism of these courts that people had to testify and often they didn't know what the ramifications were of what they said. They didn't know the ins and outs and details of laws and tax codes and so on. So they often were in effect tricked or pressured into incriminating themselves. But the council learned it in the law, as I said, it was, it became increasingly important because this was a major way that, that the crown built up its wealth at the expense of this, what had been a, an extremely rich and powerful noble class, right? So there's a, a shift in power happening. And it's, it's facilitated by this kind of new growing class of largely very educated, legally trained scholars, judges, jurists, bureaucratic managers, who are coming, in some cases, out of the minor nobility, sometimes right out of parliament. Leaders of parliament could then get these sort of plum appointments on the Court of Star Chamber and the council. And the reward was not only the prestige of serving the crown in this very powerful capacity, but also you could enrich yourself too, right? And some very important royal officials in this new growing jurist courtier class became very rich. So the first leader of the council learned in the law was Reginald Bray, 
But a few years later, he was then replaced by Sir Edmund Dudley, who was a very young, very smart, new lawyer from a sort of minor, low-level noble family in southern England. And Dudley, I think, is very emblematic of this kind of new man that became the real power behind the throne from the Tudor age onward. So I'm going to trace a little bit about his career and then his family and his progeny, the Dudley family, whose lives for generations were caught up in, became a kind of shadow story behind the Tudor family. Right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the Dudleys as a sort of not because they're the only important people like this, but because I think they illustrate so much about how power actually worked in, in this new era. So Edmund Dudley, he starts out as a parliamentarian and lawyer. He becomes the speaker of the House of Commons, and then he is appointed to lead this council learned in the law. And he very, very aggressively enforces the taxes and the imposts and the debts uh, and often the new fees and taxes levied on the wealthy people of England, both nobles and also over time more and more merchants who are becoming richer through trade. And he pockets a lot for himself. He solicits bribes, he embezzles, and he starts accumulating a large fortune and several estates around England. And he's assisted by, you might say, kind of henchmen around him who help to uh, keep this kind of shadow campaign going. Uh, and one of them is Richard Empson, uh, who came from a similar kind of background to Dudley. And these men, they tend, again, they tend to be pretty smart, right? Uh, there is some level of meritocracy. They're aggressive. They know how to ingratiate themselves to this king, who is quite paranoid. And, um, and they tend to be from southern England, right, from, from the sort of what we would call today the home counties, right, around London. And the picture that I'm using as the image for, for this particular lecture actually is a famous painting that was unknown for many years, but then was discovered, a painting on wood showing uh, the king, right, with his ermine fur collar, flanked on either side by Richard Empson and Edmund Dudley. And you can see that they're sort of, the king has his back turned to us, and he's sort of in this close, you know, quiet kind of whispering meeting where it almost looks as if he and these important counselors are, are hatching some plan or scheming maybe against someone. And so this is a, a really amazing and unusual royal portrait to, to, to portray in this way sort of the what looks like the workings of power outside of our earshot, right, in this kind of secret world around the king. So Dudley, as I said, oversees and becomes really the main leader of, of Henry VII's campaign of power consolidation and fundraising. And Eventually, Dudley, uh, Henry, Henry VII dies, and then Dudley not long after. I'll talk about exactly what happened, but this campaign of retrenchment really continues, right, and becomes kind of the great quest of the Tudor dynasty, right, how to centralize power 
in Westminster, right, in the hands of the king and his court. And the sort of biggest prize, ultimately, that the kings take away from the local nobles, ultimately, is the real sort of last resort base of brute power, which is the control of arms and the militias. So traditionally in England, you know, England is a very well-protected country. It's very hard to invade across the English Channel and across the sea. And customarily, nobles, especially dukes, were considered military leaders, right? Nobles are supposed to be the warrior class. And each duke was responsible for mustering a militia to protect his county, right? And so ultimately, strength of arms lay just as much with that with those upper-level nobles as it did with the king himself, right? And again, it was those people who largely kept the Wars of the Roses going. So in 1547, so many years later, the court of Henry VIII revokes that right and responsibility of dukes and instead appoints so-called lord's lieutenant as kind of, uh, you know, trusted uh, agents of the king who would organize and command the militias, right? And that would never have been possible a hundred years earlier. There was no way, no king had that sort of real power, whether, uh, you know, political prestige or legal power or money to, f- to, uh, to seize that privilege. But that became possible in the Tudor era. So that's just sort of a little element there that shows you, you know, how this, how this campaign was so important and really rebalanced power in England. But to back up, what happened to these guys? What happened to Henry VII and, uh, and Empson and Dudley? Well, Henry VII died of natural causes, miraculously, in 1509. And the crown passed to his eldest son, his eldest surviving son, also named Henry, who took the crown as Henry VIII. And he was only 18 years old. And he was known to be a very ambitious, uh, aggressive, self-aggrandizing new ruler, right? Uh, Much more charismatic, much more flamboyant than Henry VII had ever been. And Henry wanted to be admired, and he wanted to be loved. And perhaps reasonably, he was distrustful of these very powerful courtiers who had sort of wheedled their way into power, you might say, during the rule of Henry VII. So Henry, very quickly after coming to the throne, he has Dudley and Empson arrested and imprisoned in the Tower of London. And they were charged with so-called constructive treason, which is this weird English legal term that sort of means doing things that look kind of like treason. And it seems that what actually happened is that as Henry VII was getting old and it seemed that he might die soon, Dudley was afraid that when he did die, the realm might fall into civil war again, right? That was the great fear all through the 1500s. And so he started to organize militias and possibly lay the groundwork for a kind of makeshift army to maintain power at the capital 
and prevent any sort of coup attempt by an alternative claimant. And Henry VIII and his friends chose to see this as a sort of attempt to seize power and as, as a sort of move towards treason and rebellion. You know, so it was, it was a trumped-up charge. So both of them were imprisoned in the Tower of London, and they made many appeals and for a time had a reasonable prospect of possibly getting acquitted or maybe pardoned by the new king, right? The charges were were pretty weak and they had a lot of friends, but they ended up being in there in the Tower of London for more than a year. And during that time, Edmund Dudley did what a lot of people in prison do, which is he wrote a book and it was called The Tree of Commonwealth. And Dudley and his book, The Tree of Commonwealth, that's, it's actually what Keith Wrightson, the historian at Yale, uses to begin his course about early modern England. It's also what I started off talking about when I taught a class on early modern Europe, because I see it as so emblematic of this age. So Dudley, as we said, was very smart and educated, and while he was stuck in the tower, he wrote this book by hand, uh, The Tree of Commonwealth. And the notion of a social tree, of a sort of living, growing organism that symbolizes society or the kingdom, that was a very old idea. It was very common in the high and late Middle Ages, right? And you can see it in medieval prayer books. So this metaphor was not new. Um, And Dudley makes a, a sort of classic late medieval argument that the different people in society are like the branches and leaves of a tree, each of which has to play its particular role as part of this bigger living organism. And that includes the peasants and and the yeomen and the merchants and artisans and the noble class and the church and so on. And they all are different, literally members of this living tree, right? All of this is, is familiar, but what Dudley does a bit differently is he says the king, or the crown, is not part of the tree. Rather, the king is a sort of separate entity unto himself who hovers above the tree and tends to it and harmonizes the different parts, right? So in a medieval depiction of the social tree, you see the peasants and commoners at the bottom level, like the roots, and then The trunk in the center of the tree is the noble class with the king in the middle. And then the top of the tree is the church, right, with the clergy. Now, Dudley, in Dudley's scheme, he doesn't put the king in the middle with the second estate, the nobility, right, as part of the warrior class. He puts him sort of in another realm unto himself right, with this special role and this special privilege and this special responsibility to not only protect and and rule the realm, but to keep harmony, right, and keep order among the different parts of society. So this book, in large part, it was an apologia. It was his justification for for his actions, for his behavior. Dudley had become one of the most hated men in England, and that's surely a large part of why Henry VIII wanted to do away with him, was he was so detested by so many people that Henry VIII wanted to support him. So 
Dudley was defending himself, that these actions were justified, that really any action, no matter how disruptive, no matter how unprecedented, was always justified if it was done in the name of the crown. And it was also partly an attempt to defend himself and justify himself to Henry VIII, to flatter Henry VIII and try to win his favor and protection. And it probably never reached the king, right? Uh, But eventually, instead, Dudley was condemned and executed by beheading in the yard of the Tower of London, as many other people after him would be all through the Tudor age, right? So Dudley is interestingly ironic, right? He's one of many people who had to be uh, destroyed and eliminated in order to build and consolidate the power of the Tudor rulers. And yet, ironically, he was the very person who really started that process, right? Who made it, who made it possible. And you could say he was kind of hoisted on his own petard, right? The same happened to Empson as well. Okay, so I've brought up Henry VIII. So Henry VIII ended up becoming a long-reigning and very important monarch, maybe not successful in all respects, but very impactful, right? He ruled from 1509 to 1547, and he really built a cult of personality around himself, right? He was a sportsman. He was considered good-looking. He involved himself very much in the affairs of the state and eventually of the church, too. He had court painters, Renaissance artists like Hans Holbein paint him and depict him as big, burly, strong, handsome. We always see him in these famous portraits facing, not only facing the viewer, but gazing very confidently right uh, into our eyes, uh, decked with elaborate textiles and jewels. Uh, He was sort of you know, he really wanted to be a fabulous and impressive monarch in all respects. Right? And he, as I said, continued on many different fronts this quest to uh, suppress bases of opposition within England. He also undertook campaigns abroad against England's neighbors, which I'll, I'll maybe talk about more later. But more than anything else, more than any other goal or hope or aspiration, he was obsessed with securing the succession with a male heir. All kings want that, right? It kind of comes with the job. But for Henry VIII, it was especially crucial because the Tudor dynasty was still new. It was just managing to keep a lid on these sort of divisive forces and challenges within England. And there had to be a male heir to head off the danger of falling back into civil war again. So this is why he married six different women, okay? And this is one of the things he's he's famous for, right? Maybe maybe it's what he's most famous for today, right? Is his succession of six wives. He was not the only ruler ever to have six different spouses, but, you know, they were important in this case. And they were important for political and also for religious reasons. So I'll try not to go on too long about the backstory here, which some of you probably are familiar with and which is very famous and you can find in all kinds of accounts. But basically, to keep a long story short, uh, Henry had had an elder brother who was supposed to be the successor to Henry VII. 
And that elder brother, of course, was a very, very eligible bachelor, right? The heir apparent, uh, the Prince of Wales and the heir apparent. And he married very well. He married Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish princess. But he died before he could come to the throne, leaving Catherine as a widow. Well, what do you do? Well, for Catherine, the choice was simple. Marry the next brother, who is now the new Prince of Wales and heir apparent. So she married Henry. And this maneuver, you might say, of marrying your late husband's brother, who has now kind of taken up his role in the family, this maneuver has happened many times through history, and it's referred to several times in the Bible. And in at least one passage in the Bible, it's commanded, you must, uh, if, if you're brother dies, you must marry his widow. So that's what Henry did. There are other passages in the Bible that specifically prohibit this and say, never marry your brother's widow. That is incest. So it kind of just depends on which part of the Bible you prefer and how you choose to reconcile these apparently contradictory statements. So, you know, there was kind of this religious question in the background, you might say, concerning the legitimacy uh, of Henry's marriage to Catherine. But Catherine becomes his first queen, and they have a young son who dies very soon in infancy, and this is very distressing, of course, to Henry. It's so important to him to have a male heir. Then they have a daughter named Mary. Okay. Then for several years after, they are not able to conceive and have any more children. So Henry comes to believe that his need for a male heir cannot be fulfilled by Catherine. And he starts looking into, can I somehow annul this marriage, right? You can annul a marriage in the Roman Catholic Church if you can somehow demonstrate that it was never a legitimate marriage to begin with. And he finds this nice loophole in the form of the Bible passage that prohibits marrying your late brother's widow. Now, he then turns to the Pope, right? As monarchs do, when they want to get rid of their spouse, they turn to the Pope and say, please annul my marriage. But there's a problem. The Pope is currently under threat by a Spanish invasion of Italy. He has to deal very carefully with the very powerful rulers of Spain. And there's no way the Pope is going to insult Spain by granting Henry a divorce from Catherine of Aragon. So it's not happening. So Henry, by this point, is aware of the Protestant Reformation happening on the continent, right, in Germany and Switzerland. And he sees this as an opportunity to basically claim his own authority to make religious judgments, including interpretation of the Bible, and to ignore the authority of the Pope. So he starts, with the help of his courtiers, he starts pushing through acts of reform. He seizes more and more power and control over the church and over doctrine in England, he grants himself a divorce from Catherine of Aragon in 1533. And then the next year in 1534, he's able to get 
passed through Parliament an act of supremacy of the crown, which proclaims him the supreme leader and ruler of the church in England. And he undertakes uh, an initial reform campaign. He does things like abolishes clerical celibacy. Clergy can now marry. He has churchmen translate the Bible into English and distribute it to the churches so it can be read freely to people in their own language. And he creates a, a lasting split with Rome, right? And at the time that he does this, there's a range of religious opinion in England. Most people are Catholic, right, and are perfectly happy with the inherited order of the church and of worship. There are also some Protestants. There are some devotees of Luther who are passing around Luther's tracts and want a kind of thoroughgoing reformation like they see in Germany. Uh, but these are mostly a, a small underground minority in southern England around London and the Thames Valley, right? They're not that big a party. They're not that popular. And Henry really doesn't want them to steer his church reforms. He wants to keep it firmly under royal control. He wants it to be careful, partial, systematic, right? He does not want a massive overthrow like is happening in some other countries. So it's very much a royal reformation. And a lot of people who are not Protestant, who still adhere to Catholic teachings and practices, accept it basically just because there was a long medieval tradition of monarchs reforming the church in their realm and sort of attacking what are considered, what they consider to be abuses or corruption in the church, right? So, so Henry's reforms are seen largely in that light as kind of the tradition of the monarch intervening to, you might say, clean up the church. They're not widely embraced as a kind of radical reformation. Another route that Henry also takes, which furthers his church reforms and at the same time benefits his effort to raise money for the crown, is the dissolution of monasteries. So this is something that didn't happen right away in a single act. It's a process that started gradually in the 1530s with these initial reforms and then continued piece by piece through the 1540s, where Henry would send out royal officials and inspectors, sometimes royally backed churchmen, to the great monasteries all around England and Wales, some of which were very large, hundreds of residents, served many people, had large land holdings, many tenants and servants, were, were almost like another, you might see them as kind of a parallel noble class alongside the actual noblemen. There was kind of this class of, of often wealthy, powerful monasteries. And they had many different practices, right? Some lived very austere lifestyles. Some were more extravagant. And there were the usual sort of range of vices. There was some gluttony. There was some sex that went on in monasteries and convents. Uh, and Henry took his sort of new role, took advantage of his new role as a church reformer to seek out these sorts of malpractices going on in the monasteries and use them as justification to shut them down and seize their assets, just as Henry VII had done with so many powerful nobles, right? And just as Henry VIII himself had done with Edmund Dudley, right? He uh, uses pretexts, right, to shut them down, 
to defrock their residents and to take their lands. Okay, so all around England today, you see old abbeys and monasteries in various states of ruin, usually that were shut down and their lands and money taken by Henry VIII's government. Also under Henry VIII, you have this increasing, you know, long period of stability and the sort of commercial expansion and the increasing prosperity of towns and cities that had started in the 1400s and managed to sort of gain a foothold even during the instability of the 1400s, it dramatically increases in the 1500s. You get larger and larger English fleets going to sea. Uh, there's a shipbuilding industry in ports like Bristol and Plymouth, and they're creating a large commercial fishing fleet. Okay, They take advantage of Atlantic fisheries. Even in Henry VII's reign, there had been English fishermen going almost to the Americas, and Henry VII commissioned John Cabot to even go as far as North America to explore Newfoundland. Uh, and this continues through the reign of Henry VIII. There's also increasingly uh, frequent and well-protected trade to all the rest of Europe, to the Baltic, right, a trade in lumber and furs and other goods, from the Scandinavian countries and Germany, also frequent voyages and diplomatic missions to Russia. This is something that started also in the Middle Ages and then increased. Uh, England and Russia become greater and greater trading partners, and you can see Russian artifacts like Orthodox icons in guild halls and town halls in, in England. Also, a Mediterranean trade increases also later um, in the reign of Elizabeth and other later rulers. Uh, the English become very important in trading with Italian cities and Barcelona. And for a time, really, they're the main trading power in the Western Mediterranean for, for a brief period, but they later get outcompeted. A lot of what fuels this trade is not only fish, but also cloth. So England is a very good country for raising sheep. And I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before. I might have when I talked about the life of the commoners. Um, England has an increasing growing uh, wool industry from sheep. And a lot of it is processed, woven, dyed in England. Some is exported to other countries like Flanders and the Netherlands to be processed, but England becomes the big wool and cloth exporter to Europe. And they have particular trading partners like Portugal, which was a longtime ally of England. And England had special trading rights with Portugal. So Portugal could export their port wine duty-free into England, and the English in turn exported tremendous amounts of wool and cloth to Portugal. So England's becoming more and more of a commercial power, and a lot of it rests on sheep. And this really spurs on dramatically the enclosure movement. So manors and villages in England traditionally had a lot of common land, so sort of cleared land, fields and meadows surrounding a village or a manor were understood to be common, meaning anyone 
could go graze animals, raise uh, livestock, also garden, grow some crops, and subsist. And that was very important, both for bolstering you know, the standard of living, but also if you fell on hard times, if uh, your rent was increased for some legal reason, you were evicted, or if you had a large family and some of your children couldn't afford to obtain any land, they could go to the commons and at least survive for the time being, right? So you could say it was a kind of social safety net. Well, as the demand for wool and hence the value of sheep skyrocketed in the 1520s, 30s, 40s, a lot of landholders, right, landlords, sometimes towns and villages, monasteries, the crown, would lay claim to these common lands. And rather than allowing people to sort of live or raise food there freely, they would put up barriers. They would put up maybe fences, then stone walls, thorn hedges, to parcel out this common land and then simply seize it and graze sheep or sell it off, right? Sell it off to this increasing class of wealthy merchants that was growing up in these towns and cities. That This was a way for them to obtain land, was to buy these parcels that were being enclosed from the commons. And in order to stop this, you could A, try to take some sort of legal action. But if you're an illiterate peasant with no money, no knowledge of the law, then there were, you, you had no real chance of fighting this legally. Another thing you could do was simply tear down the barriers, right? And this became increasingly common. People would go to the commons, they would tear down fences, demolish walls, and just try to physically stop the process of enclosure. If that didn't work, you know, eventually the militia might come in and, you know, it, it could come to blows, right? So ultimately what could happen is you could organize and take up arms and rebel and try to stop enclosure by force. So there were several significant peasant uprisings in the mid-1500s triggered both by the dissolution of the monasteries and by the enclosure movement. So two of these very important rebellions were the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was the sort of high-sounding name for a rebellion mounted by churchmen and peasants in alliance against Henry VIII's policies, right? So you have monasteries being dissolved, many of which provided shelter, charity, employment to a lot of the common people and were very much part of the fabric of life. So the Pilgrimage of Grace is able to seize control of a lot of northern England, especially around York in 1536 before it's suppressed. And then another probably even larger rebellion broke out called Ket's Rebellion uh, in East Anglia, especially centered on Norfolk in 1549. So Thomas Kett was a sort of common, you might say, petty bourgeois, commoner, townsman, and he organized and mounted a rebellion of peasants, mainly to stop enclosure and to undo changes to the control of land. 
most of all enclosure, but also rack renting, right? The jacking up of rents, eviction of peasant tenants. And they were able to take control of the countryside and then even seize the major town of Norfolk. And it was eventually put down by a royal army commander named John Dudley. So John Dudley, as it happens, was the elder son of Edmund Dudley, who had survived uh, his father's execution and was raised by uh, relatives, by a sort of adoptive family. And he was eventually able to gain the favor and trust uh, of Henry VIII, largely through military service. And he became part of the sort of inner circle of powerful advisors around Henry VIII, a lot like Edmund Dudley, his father, had been for Henry VII. And when Henry VIII died in 1547, John Dudley basically stepped into the power vacuum. The throne passed to Henry's son by his third wife named Edward, and Edward was extremely young. So John Dudley sort of took charge and organized a council that oversaw government and also oversaw further reform of the church along more, you might say, more thorough reformed Protestant lines, which is what the young king preferred. And he really became, in effect, although he wasn't technically called this, he became, in effect, the regent and sort of de facto ruler of the kingdom. And he took charge of a military force under royal control within the kingdom that then met Thomas Kett's peasant forces in Norfolk and initially offered to pardon Kett if he would disband his peasant army. And Kett refused, so his forces were crushed by force under, under John Dudley. So the Reformation in England, as I said, took a further step. Uh, doctrines were changed under the rule of the young uh, King Edward and John Dudley. Doctrines were, were reformed along sort of Swiss Reformation lines, more similar to Zwingli and Calvin's teachings. Images and icons were stripped out of the churches, right? The remaining monasteries were closed down. And England really became much more of a thoroughly reformed Protestant country, like you would see in, in Switzerland, basically. Uh, so this was, you might say, a kind of second English Reformation. And this religious sort of tug of, tug of war continued back and forth among different rulers. Edward, the young king, Edward VI, only ruled for six years, right? Although he was young, he, he had bad health, he died in 1553, and he was then succeeded first, initially, by a distant relative named Lady Jane Grey. Now, how did this happen? Well, Lady Jane Grey was designated in Edward's will as his heir and successor. And sometimes, under the right conditions, whoever the monarch designates will simply be accepted as the legitimate new ruler, right? If, if it's ambiguous succession, that can happen. So in this case, uh, John Dudley and his allies and his brother, Andrew Dudley, summoned Lady Jane Grey and had her crowned and proclaimed her as queen. 
They did so because she was Protestant, because she was a relative, and because she was very young and they could probably control her like a puppet, like they had done with Edward or maybe even more so. However, other leaders of the realm, including Parliament, didn't accept this. They believed that Dudley himself had pressured King Edward to name uh, Lady Jane Grey as his heir in his will. They didn't believe that it was really legitimate. And regardless, according to normal rules of succession, it should go to the closest heir, and that, in that case, should be his elder sister. Right? So there was no male heir to be found anywhere in sight after Edward's death, so the next option should be his elder sister, Mary. Okay. Now, Mary, I've already mentioned before, she was the eldest surviving child of Henry VIII, and she was the daughter of Henry and his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, right, the Spanish princess. So she was a Roman Catholic. She'd been raised Catholic, and she had never accepted the legitimacy of Henry's Protestant reforms, much less of Edward's, right? So this is where Henry VIII's different wives come into play, right? Edward was a thoroughgoing Protestant. His mother had been Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour, a committed Protestant. Mary, when it goes to Mary, you revert back to a Catholic, right? And she returns the realm to Catholicism. She brings Catholic prelates, including many English exiles from abroad, back to take up rule of the church again, to re-Catholicize it. She sets up a holy office of the Inquisition, and she undertakes many significant policies. The most famous is the persecution of Protestants, right? So several hundred Protestant writers, preachers, are arrested and condemned and burned at the stake during Mary's rule, right? So she's one of many rulers of this age who persecute people they consider to be heretics, right? Uh, she also tries to realign England's foreign policy. She marries King Philip II of Spain. Okay, so there's, a, there's an alignment of England and Spain. And she, much like her father, Henry, she tries very hard to conceive an heir, but uh, is unable to. Apparently, several times she thinks she's pregnant. It never actually works out. And she, too, dies after only five years in 1558. So... Who does the throne go to now? Well, there's one child of Henry VIII still left, and that's the younger daughter, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is the daughter of Henry and his second wife, that you've probably heard of, Anne Boleyn, who was also a committed Protestant, right? Firm Protestant convictions. So Henry VIII, he divorces Catherine of Aragon, in large part on the expectation that he's then going to marry this very attractive and smart young lady-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. So their daughter, Elizabeth, manages to survive this crazy back-and-forth uh, religious tug-of-war. For a time, under Mary's rule, she's imprisoned in the Tower of London, but she always manages to kind of talk her way out and stay alive. And so she then is the one remaining heir. She comes to the throne. And Elizabeth's goal, you could say in a lot of ways, she looks at the religious issue in England, similarly to the way Henry VII and Henry VIII looked at the divide between Lancastrians and Yorkists. She just wants 
a third way compromise settlement that'll put this conflict behind them. She's a Protestant, right? And it does seem that she was probably sincerely Protestant. You know, she, she followed in the line of thinking of her mother. But she, but she basically just wants to create a consensus. So very soon after coming to the throne, she puts forward a new series of religious acts. She again has herself proclaimed as supreme head and governor of the Church of England, much as Henry had done. And she sees herself in many ways as, as like her father, right, and as her, her father's daughter. As for the doctrines, they're basically firm, down-the-line, reformed Protestant doctrines, okay, much like you would have seen in the reign of Edward, okay, inspired very much by the Swiss Reformation, uh, you know, predestination, uh, justification by faith. But in terms of the worship style, how was worship done? It actually is very much a compromise that looks in many ways a lot more like Catholicism, right? There's beautification of the churches again. There is more ceremony. There is a book of common prayer, right? Rather than simply preaching and reading from the Bible, there's a book of common prayer, a liturgy. The priests are called, for one thing, they're called priests, and they wear vestments, very similar to Roman Catholic priests. Uh, and so th it seems that this, this was basically what Elizabeth saw as ideal. She, she liked some of the beauty and the pomp and circumstance of pre-Reformation medieval worship. But she also believed in Protestant doctrines. And the church would be governed episcopally, okay? So with a hierarchy of bishops led ultimately by the Archbishop of Canterbury, which would be able to set doctrine and settle conflicts and disputes and would be the, the sort of higher powers in the church, ultimately under the authority of the monarch, right? So this is, this is again, a sort of weird hybrid compromise, right? On the one hand, it's, it's governed by this clerical hierarchy like the Catholic Church, but at the top, it doesn't lead to the Pope. It leads to the Queen herself. So Elizabeth uh, is able to kind of hold together this rough consensus uh, under what we call the Elizabethan settlement. Um, there are still some Catholics, and Catholicism is eventually banned and becomes an underground sort of secret faith, largely practiced in private in the homes of wealthy nobles who remain loyal to Catholicism. So there is a continuing Catholic party that might have constituted around 10% or so of the population. And at the other end, there are also some Puritans who are Protestant, who are members, baptized members of this Church of England, but who believe it has not been thoroughly reformed enough and who want to see the style of worship and church governance changed to be more like the thorough reformed Protestant churches that you see in Switzerland and also in France now among the French Huguenots. So you could say she, she sort of had extremist wings on either side of her, but she managed to hold a sort of broad middle that most of the people in England could accept. So Elizabeth rules for 45 years and she, again, is also aided by this class of courtiers, jurists, diplomats, who, again, kind of do the dirty work of ruling. And there are many important people we could talk about, Lord Burley and Francis Walsingham, 
who were kind of her fixers, but possibly the longest lasting one and a very close friend and confidant of Queen Elizabeth is Robert Dudley, who is the son of John Dudley. Okay, so again, the third generation of the Dudley family is here in the inner circle of the Tudor court. Okay, so Robert Dudley uh, again survived these these tumults, much as Elizabeth herself had done. He was imprisoned, he was even condemned, but eventually was pardoned and saved. He, after the queen came to the throne, he became her master of horse. So a sort of, you know, significant servant of the crown, but not necessarily so politically important. He also, it seems, was a real, he was referred to as a suitor of the queen. He's sometimes also called in quotations and air quotes, a favorite of Queen Elizabeth. They spent a lot of personal and intimate time together. He was an attractive, dashing young man. Uh, They almost surely were lovers. Okay, we don't know exactly what happened behind closed doors. But, you know, if you put two and two together, they were probably lovers. He was married when he became master of horse. Conveniently, his wife fell down a set of stairs and died in 1560. Robert Dudley wasn't there when this happened. But nonetheless, it looked awfully convenient when this happened. And many observers suspected that Robert Dudley had maybe had something to do with it. But regardless, this sort of put a pall and, uh, you know, again, another cloud of, of doubt and suspicion over the idea of him marrying the queen. So they didn't marry, but he hung around as an important courtier. It was considered for 15, 16 years that they might marry, but they never did. And eventually he was moved up into more important positions. He became Lord Steward of the Royal Household. Right, so really controlled a lot of the access to the queen. He became a privy councillor, right, one of the inner circle of official advisors to the monarch. He was a military officer and commanded English troops abroad, which was really a new thing for England to even consider sending an actual military expedition uh, overseas. But he led English forces supporting the Dutch revolt in 1585 to 87, right? So by this point, the queen has been on the throne more than 25 years. He's known as one of the real powers behind the throne, and he is helping to take up this cause of of England leading Protestant Europe, right? Of England uh, taking up the the cause of, of protecting Protestantism against the Catholic powers, right? So again, a totally realigned new foreign policy. And it seems that Dudley was a particularly committed Protestant. He was pro-Puritan. He often mediated conflicts in the Church of England and was in favor of protecting the, the, the Puritan cause, the people who wanted to put aside the Book of Common Prayer, who wanted to preach from the Bible and to teach Reformed doctrines. And he helped to protect and build up the kind of cult of personality around Queen Elizabeth, right? So it seems that Elizabeth had very sophisticated and you might say forward-looking ideas and strategies about propaganda and public image. Uh, She knew that 
a great deal had been taken away from the English people in the Reformation, particularly the worship of saints and the cult of Mary, which had been extremely important to England, right? If you think of uh, Our Lady of Walsingham, this very beautiful, elaborate, famous chapel in England dedicated to Mary as the protector of seafarers, right? And as the protector of this seafaring country that England had become. Well, all of that was wiped out between Edward's Reformation and Elizabeth's religious settlement. And in some ways, she sort of built up a cult around herself, you know, uh, never marrying, right? And presenting herself as a virgin like Mary, dressing herself in elaborate jewels as Henry had done, painting her body white, uh, again, emphasizing her purity, her virginity, and presenting herself as a kind of a, in a sense, a kind of holy woman and a symbol of, of the realm, a symbol of England. She was pressured for years to make a diplomatic marriage, and she never did. She sometimes hinted that she might. She had flirtations with a suitor from France, the Duke of Anjou, but they never sealed the deal. It's possible that she, there may have been a biological reason. She may have been infertile and knew that she couldn't produce an heir anyway. She probably knew that if she did marry, that the husband would cut dramatically into her own authority and control over her government, and she didn't want that to happen. So for all these reasons, uh, she, she didn't marry, and she remained supposedly, officially a virgin, right, and was referred to as the Virgin Queen. And that's, you know, things like you may, have, you may know Virginia in America was named for her being supposedly a, a virgin ruler. She again presented herself as the leader and symbol of Protestantism. She presented herself as totally devoted to her country, right? She always spoke about her love of her country, the sacrifice that she'd made. She, she in some ways, she presented her virginity, her unmarried state, as a sign of her devotion to England. And there are, reportedly, there are incidents when advisors like Lord Burley would bring up the question of whether she would marry, and she would point to her royal signet ring and say, I am married to England. Very good line that sort of embodies how she wanted to be understood. She encouraged and supported further naval expansion and privateering, okay, so that the navy continues to grow despite the crown being really strapped for money. She still uh, was willing to sort of push the country to, to its financial limit, to further expand its sea power. She knew that they still could not effectively face off against a major enemy, particularly Spain, which was the great power at this time. But nonetheless, she encouraged privateers, people like Francis Drake and Walter Raleigh, to wage a kind of seaborne guerrilla campaign against Spain, Okay, going and raiding Spanish harbors and shipyards, uh, at one point even managing to attack the harbor of Cadiz, the, the biggest uh, sort of lifeline between the Spanish homeland and their colonies. They said that uh, they managed to singe the king of Spain's beard okay, when they attacked Cadiz, and also sending out sort of sea dogs to kind of opportunistically attack Spanish ships, particularly the treasure-laden ships that brought the gold and silver from the massive American empire back to Spain, right? So this strategy of kind of gradually sapping 
Spanish power by, by this sort of small-scale guerrilla campaign. Okay, you may have heard of the story of Mary, Queen of Scots. I will not go into that in gross detail. You can see it dramatized. You can read about it. But just in brief, Queen Elizabeth had a cousin who also was part Tudor and who hence, if you didn't consider Elizabeth to be legitimate, the next reasonable claimant to the throne would be Mary, Queen of Scots, who was the Queen Regnant of Scotland. She had been born to the throne, right? Uh, She had had a very tumultuous, difficult reign, several bad marriages, coups, religious conflict, like in England. Mary was a Roman Catholic. Most of her subjects were Protestant. It was a very messy scene. And eventually, uh, in the 1560s, Mary was overthrown by a coup within Scotland. And rather than be imprisoned or possibly even tried and executed, she fled to England. England agreed to give her shelter, but also imprisoned her and kept her sort of circulating around a series of castles in the interior of England, trying to prevent her from having any chance to gather supporters and mount an invasion of England, which could then overthrow Elizabeth and install Mary in her place as a Catholic ruler. So this was, again, a live threat during almost during most of Elizabeth's reign. This was a real live threat, is what what's happening with Mary, Queen of Scots, and is someone going to try to overthrow Elizabeth and get a Catholic claimant on the throne? So eventually in 1587, Mary, Queen of Scots, is accused of communicating and exchanging letters with Roman Catholic conspirators who want to overthrow Elizabeth and replace her with Mary. It is still unknown to this day whether that's true or whether it's just a bunch of forged documents created by courtiers who wanted to eliminate Mary. But she is tried and condemned, which is very controversial at the time, quite shocking to many people, because she is an anointed monarch. Okay, and she refuses to testify at all, which probably was the only good option she had when she was put before a court, was to say, I refuse to say anything to this court. I am an anointed monarch. You have no right to accuse me or try me for anything. Well, you know, that was maybe all she could say, but it didn't work. Uh, And eventually Elizabeth, although she's very reluctant, she's reluctant to see an anointed queen executed. She's, you know, reluctant to break that precedent. She's reluctant to see her own cousin and relative executed, but eventually she signs the death warrant. Mary is executed, which maybe wouldn't be such a big deal, except that it was a huge slap in the face, particularly to Spain. Right? So Spain has now risen to take up the role of kind of leader and protector of Catholic Europe. And In their view, Elizabeth has finally gone too far. She has killed a rightful, legitimate monarch who also was a Catholic and hence, in a sense, sort of their ward that they felt a duty to protect. So Spain sets about building and assembling the biggest naval force that had ever been seen in the world to that time, the massive Spanish armada of hundreds of ships which will carry thousands of men, cannon, weaponry. 
and will land and invade England. So in 1588, when this armada launches, England is in enormous trouble, right? This, it's looking very bleak. But as has happened other times, both before and since, England is saved both by its own ingenuity and by the English Channel, right? So a series of storms come from the North Sea and hit the Spanish Armada very hard, uh, disorient and uh, break up a lot of the ships. Uh, English privateers like Raleigh set out on the water on smaller, more maneuverable ships are able to attack the Spanish fleet opportunistically as they had much practice doing. They also set fire. They use fire ships to ignite some of the Spanish galleons and men of war. And over the course of a few days, this armada is decimated, and the remaining ships that survive simply circle up through the North Sea around Britain and back down to Spain, and you in metaphorically limp back into port in Spain. It happens that when the armada was approaching, Robert Dudley was in command of the land forces, the militias that had been mustered and assembled, to try to sort of desperately protect this, the English coast from a landing. Okay, and this was largely a symbolic gesture. I mean, really, if the Spanish did manage to land, what are the chances that these English militias would even be able to intercept them wherever they were landing, much less block them or defeat them? So the view of many of Elizabeth's courtiers was that the queen had to be secreted away somewhere. She had to be moved off into the hills in the interior of the country, put into some secret defensible location to maybe ride out the storm and see what happened with this Spanish invasion. However, Robert Dudley was with the troops at a particular beach on the southern coast of the country at Tilbury. And Dudley invited the queen to come down and address the troops rather than hiding away. And she saw that this was the better move, right? She was a master of message and of image. So instead, she went and made a speech to the troops, telling them that, that she would remain there with them rather than run away. Right. And that was a tremendous statement for a ruler to make. Uh, so she rode uh, probably on a horse or a mule among the troops without bodyguards, right? basically daring anyone to attack her or try to assassinate her. And she made a speech. We don't know for sure exactly what she said, but versions of it were noted down later by people who may have witnessed it. And it seems that roughly she said, I dare any prince to invade the borders of my realm, which was a very symbolic statement as a woman, right? She's sort of, you might say, invoking or hinting at the idea of an invasion being like a rape, right? That any foreign prince who tries to come into my realm is like, is like a rapist raping a virgin, which is what she proclaimed herself to be. She also said, uh, I may have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too, right? So this, this appeal both to her own, her own courage in being there and also to national pride, right? And the idea that England is somehow especially brave or strong. 
So she apparently remained there at Tilbury through the Armada crisis until it was over, which was a move that paid off tremendously for her, right? That she now had this great pride and this prestige that she had stood there with her troops through this hour uh, of danger, right? And it was really because of that that she became a national hero, you know, not just an interesting or iconic ruler, but a beloved national hero. And she was enormously popular, at least you could say for those 10 years after the Armada. And when people talk about the Elizabethan era and the Golden Age, they're usually... it usually basically means these last 15 years of her reign from the defeat of the armada in 1588 until she died in 1603 and that was a period of continuing commercial growth of greater exploration uh, and urban growth this is when london really takes off and becomes uh, you know a busy crowded active metropolis Okay. It had been the largest town in the kingdom probably since about the time of Henry VII. Uh, you know, there had been other larger towns before, like Winchester. But this is where London starts to become something like what we think of as London, right? A crowded metropolis with bridges across the Thames, spanning both sides of, of the river, uh, a place with theater and art, crime and disease. There was a growing commercial class, right? What, what you could call technically a bourgeoisie. And this class claimed more and more political power, especially through the House of Commons. So this is when the House of Commons really overtakes the House of Lords as the much more important center of debate, the origin of, of legislation and reform. And in the last few years of her reign, uh, the House of Commons becomes the, the venue for an increasing movement to abolish various inherited privileges of the nobility, including monopolies. Right? So there was a long tradition of monarchs in England granting so-called monopolies to powerful nobles who were loyal to the crown and who had served the crown, right? It was one of their strategies. And a monopoly was the exclusive right to charge a tax or a tariff on a certain good. If you were the Duke of Cumbria or whatever, and you got a monopoly on playing cards, then you could levy a tariff on all playing cards that came into England. And when England was a comparatively poor backwater country, all kinds of luxury goods were imported. So they were very, these kinds of monopolies were very important. But increasingly, commoners represented in the House of Commons were displeased and felt that this was an unfair privilege and that it also held back the commerce of England and it held back this, the, the advance of this new commercial prosperity. So this became a big tug of war between this kind of new rising middle class, and the older nobility, right? And ultimately, in 1601, Elizabeth sided with the commons and made a speech that was called her golden speech, where she announced, firstly, that she would abolish monopolies. And she basically said, I'm doing this because my people want it, and I am led and ruled by the love of my people. And she, again, sort of 
made a sort of final statement. She understood that she was old. Her health was already declining. She didn't expect that she would be making any more public addresses. This was, in effect, kind of her farewell speech. And she said, you know, I, I don't know how I'll be remembered, if I'll be known as the most effective monarch, the most successful, but I, I don't think anyone could be seen as a more loving monarch than I have been, right? And again, underscoring this whole kind of trope that she is like married to the kingdom. She's like the loving spouse, the wife or mother of, of her country. And this final period, this, this last 15 years, is also the time of, of new artistic flourishing, especially literary, okay? And I'll, hopefully I'll talk about this more later maybe when I talk about Shakespeare. But this is the time when Marlowe writes his plays that are staged in these new theaters being built in London. It's when Shakespeare writes his plays and poems, Ben Jonson, Kidd. There's this new flourishing of literature in English, both in verse and in prose. It uses the kind of new form, the new dialect of English that has grown up in southern England around London that is different from the older Middle English dialects of the, the other parts of the country, right? It's this new kind of modern English that we understand today that has an incredibly rich, wide-ranging vocabulary of Anglo-Saxon and Latin and French and all kinds of foreign words, um, and that these brilliant writers like Shakespeare and Ben Jonson loved to play with and to pun with and make double and triple meanings. And Shakespeare also, he wrote, he was the first playwright to write history plays, to take chronicles of previous rulers like Richard II and Henry V and make dramas out of them to sort of spin historical fiction out of them uh, to be performed for the public, including illiterate people. And really, when you look at the body of his works, you can see that he was obsessed with kingship in a way that hardly anyone had ever been and that we don't necessarily notice because we're used to seeing lots of plays and dramas and, you know, costume dramas about rulers like Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth. But Shakespeare was the first to do this, to say, I'm going to take this account maybe very brief account of some previous ruler's life and make a dramatic play out of it for people to enjoy. And he was obsessed with kingship and his history plays were very popular in large part because there was this constant confusion and uncertainty over who's the legitimate ruler and why and who supports them and who doesn't and how are they going to rule and how are they going to exercise power. Everyone had been caught up in this history in their own lives, all through the Wars of the Roses and the Tudor dynasty of this kind of constant feuding for war and authority. And you could say in, in, in this final Elizabethan golden age, this brief period at the end of the 1500s, people maybe had a little time to reflect and to say, well, we have a ruler who's widely respected, who seems to have created stability, who can defend the realm. And now we can kind of step back and think about what does all of this mean and how, who got power and how and why, who won the contest, 
who is left standing at the end of the play, right? And they knew that, that they were reflecting on these questions and talking about them as Elizabeth aged without an heir, right? She had, she had never had children. And so it was, you know, with some uncertainty then that uh, people learned that she had died of natural causes at home in the spring of 1603. And who would be her successor? Well, her successor ended up being James of Scotland, who was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who had been executed on Elizabeth's orders. Right? But he was a Protestant. He had been raised Protestant, uh, unlike Mary, Queen of Scots. And he seemed to basically respect the religious settlement and the political settlement, the political order that had been built around the Tudors over the previous century. And so in a lot of ways, the Tudor legacy then continued in the Stuart era. But maybe I'll go back to that uh, another time. But I just wanted to tell this story in this way to give you a little uh, encapsulation of what was really so impactful and what historians tend to take from the Tudor age beyond just the sort of closet drama of Henry and his wives or Elizabeth and his lovers. So again, I'd like to keep these lectures coming regularly. I'm interested in what you want to hear more about. I have a number of ideas in the pipeline, especially for more myths of the month. And if you want to hear these coming regularly, please uh, go to Patreon uh, and support with whatever you can, even if it's just a dollar. And post online, tell friends and family. Thank you. 